Hey, good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 5. We are making our way through a series on the book of Acts here. And this morning we are in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. I just want to say welcome if you're a guest this morning. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we're glad that you're here with us. Certainly praying that God would work through the preaching of his word. To that end, I know Jim just prayed, but let me pray that we would have hearts to hear this morning. Father, we do ask for your help in this moment as we open up your word. We know that what we're about to do is an amazing thing. We get to study your word, which has been given to us as a gift. And your kindness to us, you've revealed yourself to us through your word. And we pray that we would now have ears to hear Regardless of what may be going on in our lives, regardless of what distractions we may bring with us this morning, we pray that we would have ears to hear and that you would speak mightily through your word. Help us this morning, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Rand is one of the most difficult places on earth to be a Christian. In fact, earlier this year when the missions organization Open Doors released their annual list of most difficult places on earth to be a Christian, Rand was ranked number eight. It's not hard to see why Iran is ranked so highly. In Iran, anyone who shares their Christian faith or publishes Christian literature or holds church services in the common language Farsi can be arrested. Secret churches are regularly raided. Their leaders and members frequently arrested and given long prison sentences for, quote, crimes against national security. Those jailed are often sent to Evan Prison, which is known as the country's torture factory. Just this last year, two Christian converts were flogged 80 times for taking communion, and then sentenced to several years in prison for organizing house churches. Aside from the constant threat of arrest and imprisonment, and even in some cases death, Christians are also routinely fired from their jobs and denied housing simply because they believe in Jesus. I think it's safe to say that being a Christian in Iran is not easy. And yet, remarkably enough, Iran is home to one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. It's estimated that 20 years ago, the number of Christian converts from a Muslim background in Iran were around 5,000 to 10,000. Today, that number is between 800,000 and 1 million. More Iranians have come to know Christ in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries combined when Islam first entered Iran. That's incredible growth, especially when you consider the fact that during that same time period, in those last 20 plus years, the Iranian government has been doing everything they can to stop the spread of Christianity. And yet, despite all of their opposition, the church has flourished. As one author succinctly summarized the situation, persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church, but instead the church in Iran has become the fastest growing in the world, and it's influencing the region of the Middle East for Christ. It's an amazing story that defies expectation. How is it that the church in Iran can flourish despite such opposition? How is it that the church is growing like wildfire when the authorities are doing everything they can to quench the fire? A story like that almost seems unbelievable. Unless, of course, you've read the Bible. Because if you've read the Bible, the story of the church in Iran is not surprising at all and does not stretch the bounds of believability in the least. Because in the Bible, we see a consistent pattern in which the church of Jesus Christ faces opposition, and yet the church flourishes anyway. We see that in our passage today. In Acts 5, 12-42, the church faces increasing opposition, and yet the church continues to advance and even thrive And in that, I think we're reminded that the church in Iran today is not an anomaly. Throughout history and throughout the world, the church has continued to advance in spite of great opposition and persecution. And in fact, sometimes it's advanced 
because of opposition and persecution. And in that reality, I think we find a great truth this morning. Despite opposition and persecution, the church of Jesus Christ will not be thwarted. Now, there may be times in certain areas where it seems like maybe the church is being squashed or where there's great difficulty that the church faces. But in the end, the church of Jesus Christ will prevail. My hope this morning is as we see this reality lived out in Acts 5, we'll be encouraged in our faith to keep pressing on. Regardless of what difficulties we may face today, regardless of what difficulties may come our way in the future, the hope is that we will keep following Jesus and realize that the church won't be stopped. So all that to say, let's go ahead and read Acts 5, 12 to 42. I'm going to ask you to stand here. This is a little bit longer section. I want to read it in its totality. For those who are worried that we're going to be standing forever, it'll take about two minutes and 45 seconds, so we can make it. So Acts 5, 12 to 42, the words will be on the screen here. I'll be reading from my Bible. You can follow along in your own Bibles as well. Acts 5, 12 to 42. The Word of God says this, starting verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison during the night. And the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple 
And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It's the word of God. You may be seated. All right, so there are two things I want you to see in the passage this morning. One, the unrelenting nature of opposition to the church, and two, the unstoppable nature of the church. And actually, I don't think we can fully appreciate the second, the unstoppable nature of the church, until we understand the first, the unrelenting nature of opposition to the church. So before we get to the encouraging element, the unstoppable nature of the church, let's first focus here in this passage on the unrelenting nature of opposition to the church. Now, as always, the context of this passage is important. Remember in Acts 3, Peter and John heal a lame man and go on to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. In Acts 4, they're arrested for doing so and charged by the religious council to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. But despite the warning and the prohibition from the council, after Peter and John are released from prison, they keep preaching Jesus as the Christ anyway. And according to our passage today in verses 12 to 16, they're also performing signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. Now to be sure, verses 12 to 16 give us some unique insight to the divine power that was at work amongst the apostles. Through the hands of the apostles, the lame were being healed, the sick were being cured, and those afflicted with unclean spirits were being set free. There's even a hint in this passage that perhaps God was working in such a powerful way that people were being healed even by Peter's shadow. It's a pretty remarkable set of events in verses 12 to 16. People are being healed, the crowds are captivated, and although some believers are hesitant to join the apostles, I think that's what's going on in verse 13, perhaps out of fear of persecution, they don't want to join all the way in. The overall number of believers, though, is increasing. In verse 14, we're told that multitudes of men and women are being added to the number who believe in the Lord. So God is doing incredible things through the apostles in verses 12 to 16. And yet, oddly enough, these wonderful works of healing and restoration do not lead to admiration or gratitude from the religious leaders. Rather, these wonderful works lead to more persecution. Look at verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So there's no hint here in verses 17 to 18 that the high priests and religious leaders were considering the claims of the apostles as to who Jesus was. Nor is there a hint that the signs and wonders of verses 12 to 16 gave the religious leaders any sort of pause to consider maybe something's going on here. Rather, we're simply told in verses 17 to 18 that out of jealousy, the religious council arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. And in that, we're reminded that opposition to the church is indeed relentless. Opposition to the message of Christ is relentless. The apostles are doing some amazing things, and yet they are still opposed. And the rest of our passage only confirms this opposition, verses 19 to 28. It says this, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Verse 24, Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. No kidding, right? Of course they were greatly perplexed. All of a sudden these guys are free and they don't know how. Continuing, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are sitting in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. 
And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So after the apostles are miraculously freed from prison by an angel of the Lord, the religious leaders again here do not pause to consider the wisdom of their own position. There's no hint here that the miraculous escape from prison even causes them to pause for a second and consider maybe God's doing something, right? They're performing miraculous signs. Now they've been miraculously set free from prison. And yet the religious leaders don't even seem to slow down and think, hey, maybe something's going on. Instead, they have the apostles rearrested, and the religious council reaffirms their disapproval of the apostles preaching Christ. When the apostles refuse to back down from the religious council, the council's anger only intensifies. This is verse 33. After the apostles doubled down, verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So I think it's safe to say here that the response of the religious council would indicate there's some pretty serious opposition to the message of Jesus Christ. And there's some pretty serious opposition to the church. They've gone from warning Peter and John to no longer speak in the name of Jesus in chapter 4 to now threatening death for all the apostles in chapter 5. Now they end up not following through on that threat of death because of a speech given by a man named Gamaliel. It's a really interesting speech and one that we'll come back to here in just a second. But even though Gamaliel temporarily talks them off the ledge in terms of putting all the apostles to death, it's clear at the end of this passage that opposition to the church is not going away. And opposition to the message of Christ not going away either. In fact, verse 40, we read this as kind of the conclusion of the matter. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, we don't know for sure what type of beating they took in verse 40, but history would lead us to believe most likely they received the 40 lashes minus one. So 39 times, alternately on the back and the chest, they would be whipped with a three-cord strand of calf hide. 39 times they would be whipped, twice on the back, once on the chest, alternating 13 times for a total of 39. It's most likely the punishment they received here. But even if that wasn't their exact punishment, the beating of verse 40 shows a clear escalation of opposition. Again, in chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and told, no longer speak in the name of Jesus. But now in chapter 5, all of the apostles are arrested, and they are beaten and told to no longer speak in the name of Jesus, and even threatened with death. If the apostles had any notion in chapter 4 that their arrest was simply a blip on the radar, that notion is completely obliterated here in chapter 5. At the end of chapter 5, it's clear that opposition to the church and opposition to the message of Jesus Christ is not going away. Indeed, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, the apostles are going to face increasing difficulty and opposition. The book of Acts even ends with the apostle Paul still in prison. In other words, there's no happy ending. There's never a point in the book of Acts where you say, oh, finally they can rest. No, they are oppressed and persecuted throughout. And in that, we're again reminded that opposition to the church is indeed unrelenting in nature. But here's the thing. That's what I want you to understand this morning. The unrelenting nature of opposition to the church and the unrelenting nature of opposition to the message of Christ should not surprise us in the least. Because this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. In John 15, Jesus told his disciples, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In that same passage, he talks about the world hating him, and thus not being surprised if the world hates us, his followers. In Matthew 10, Jesus predicts the future, and he does so with great certainty, saying, his followers will be delivered over to the courts and flogged in the synagogues and be dragged before governors and kings for his name's sake, which is exactly what's happening here in Acts chapter 5. 
So the opposition that we see to the gospel message and the opposition that we see to the church in Acts 5 and throughout the book of Acts is not surprising at all. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. The early church should not have been, and it seems that they weren't. They were not surprised at the relentless opposition they faced. But I think what we need to understand is that we should not be surprised either when we face the same type of relentless opposition. As Jesus says it in John 17 to all of his followers, in this world you will have trouble. As Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Listen, the Bible is really clear here. If you seek to follow Christ, you will face opposition. But having that expectation is actually key so that you don't get discouraged when the opposition comes. I think for a long time, just because of where we live, a lot of us have lived under the faulty assumption that the world doesn't really mind Christianity. And thus the world will probably be friendly to our Christian values and goals. But as we're increasingly finding out, nothing could be further from the truth. In this world, opposition to Christ has always been and always will be real. So we should not find it strange that the values of the world do not match up with the values of Christ. We should not be caught off guard when our political leaders advocate for an agenda that's inconsistent with the Word of God. And we should not find it odd if the vast majority of our friends at school or the vast majority of our coworkers reject the teaching of the Bible in certain areas. Opposition to Christ is real. It's part of living in this world. And hear this, oftentimes the opposition will come from illogical and inconsistent and really weird places. In Acts 5, we don't get the impression that the religious leaders were primarily concerned with rejecting Christ out of theological or intellectual reasons. Now, no doubt they have their theological and intellectual arguments, but in our passage today, that doesn't seem to be their primary motivator. Their primary motivator is not that they reject the resurrection of Christ or that they're questioning the signs and wonders of the apostles. No, their primary motivator for opposing the apostles is jealousy. And in that, we're reminded that the opposition we face will often come from strange places. It oftentimes won't make sense. But just because it doesn't make sense doesn't make it any less real. We need to understand, and what we need to brace ourselves for is the relentless nature of opposition that will come towards the church. But as discouraging as that may be, and I realize that might be a little bit discouraging, there's also some very encouraging news in this passage. While Acts 5 helps us to see the unrelenting nature of opposition to the church, the second thing that we see in this passage is the unstoppable nature of the church. So as I mentioned earlier, many in the religious council were ready to kill all the apostles in Acts 5. It would have been a pretty dramatic moment for the early church if all of the apostles would have been killed here. But they're persuaded not to do so, at least in part because of his speech given by this man named Gamaliel. So let's turn our attention to that speech in verses 33 through 40. So in verse 33, they're upset with the apostles, and they say this. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this plan, or this understanding is of man, it will fail. But it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice 
When they called on the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So Gamaliel was a well-respected religious leader in his day. We learn in Acts 22 that he was actually Saul's mentor before Saul or Paul came to know Christ. The content of his speech here in Acts 5 is really fascinating. And his basic point seems to be this. If this Jesus movement is from man, it will die out on its own. And he actually gives some examples where that's happened in the past. And thus, his conclusion seems to be, if it's, a from, if it's from man, it'll die out and you don't need to radically oppose it. But if the movement is from God, you won't be able to stop it and you might even be found opposing God. So let's just wait and see what happens. That seems to be the general gist of Gamaliel's speech. Now, some of the years I said, well, this was great wisdom by Gamaliel. But the truth is, there are some holes in his argument here. Namely, sometimes those who are evil flourish, despite their work not being from God. And sometimes the godly try to follow God, and their cause fails anyway. Thus, the idea that you should just wait it out and see what happens is not always good advice. Sometimes evil needs to be actively opposed in order to be stopped. In fact, we can think of lots of examples of that in history. On the other end of the spectrum, just because a cause fails doesn't mean it wasn't from God. But those qualifications aside, in the long run, Gamaliel's on to something. And when I say in the long run, I mean in the long, long run. In the long, long run, movements of men will fail and movements of God will succeed. And actually, I think Gamaliel is speaking better than he knows here. Because what he says about movements of God not being stopped is actually, ironically enough, what's kind of being lived out in this passage. In Acts 5, we're meant to see that despite opposition from the church, or despite the opposition the church was facing, the church was not going to be stopped because it was from God. The message of the gospel was going to go forth no matter what. The unstoppable nature of the gospel message is actually one of the themes of the book of Acts, and is certainly a theme that we see clearly here in this passage. Think about everything that happens to the church in Acts chapter 5. In Acts 5, verses 1 to 11, the passage we looked at last week, sin threatens the church in the form of Ananias and Sapphira's deception. But what happens in verses 5, 12 to 16? Well, God continues to advance the message through signs and wonders. In Acts 5, 17 to 18, the apostles are arrested. All of them thrown in prison. But what happens in Acts 5, 19 to 21? God sends an angel to set the apostles free so they can keep proclaiming the word. Acts 5, 26, the apostles are arrested again. Acts 5, 33, many in the religious council want to put them to death. But what happens in Acts 5, 34 to 39? God uses the speech of this non-believing Pharisee to spare them. Acts 5, 40, the apostles are beaten and charged to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. But what happens in Acts 5, 41 and 42? The apostles rejoice in their suffering and they keep preaching the word. In other words, despite every obstacle they face in this chapter, sin within the church, imprisonment, arrest, threats of death, beatings, warnings, the gospel of Jesus Christ keeps advancing, and people keep being added to the number of those who believe. Here's what you need to understand this morning. The gospel message of Jesus Christ cannot be chained. It cannot be beaten out of someone, and you cannot squash it to death. The word of God is not hindered. And as stewards of the gospel message, the church of Jesus Christ will not be stopped either. Now, the church may be messy, and it's certainly not perfect. Sometimes the church will make dumb mistakes, and sometimes it will commit ugly sins. And yet, as Jesus himself puts it, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church, and by that I mean the big church, the church comprised of true believers in all places everywhere, that church will not be thwarted. Now, individual churches may come and go, 
Some will collapse, others will thrive. But the big church, all believers all across the world throughout history, will not be stopped. And because they cannot fail. We've read the end of this story and we know how it ends. Jesus wins. And his followers will reign with him forever. So regardless of what opposition we may face, regardless of what persecution may come our way, we can be completely confident in where this is headed. That Jesus will win and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And because that's the case, we can live differently now. And in fact, in Acts 5, I think we see the church doing just that. Church in Acts 5 lived differently because they were confident in the victory of Christ and confident that the message of the kingdom would not be thwarted. And the way in which they lived in Acts 5, I think, serves as a model for us as to how we might live in light of the unstoppable nature of the church. More specifically, I think there are three things we see here in terms of a response that we should have in light of what we read in Acts 5 and in light of the unstoppable nature of the church. First, in light of the unstoppable nature of the church, we should be courageous. We should be courageous. The courage of the apostles in this passage and the courage of the apostles to this point in the book of Acts is astounding. Again, in chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and told to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. But what do they do? They pray for boldness and they keep speaking the word. Here in chapter 5, all the apostles are arrested because they're proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. And after being set free by the angel, what do they do? At daybreak, they immediately go and they keep preaching the word. And then after being detained once again and dragged before the religious council again, look at how they respond in verses 27 to 32. This is pretty amazing. Verse 27, when they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, if this wasn't such a serious scene, which eventually leads to threats for their death, what we read in verses 27 to 32 would almost be comical. In chapter 4, the religious council had charged the apostles not to teach in the name of Jesus. And yet in verse 28, the religious council informs us that actually they'd filled Jerusalem with teaching about Jesus. In other words, they didn't just kind of disobey the command and just quietly talk about Jesus. No, they filled all of Jerusalem. And yet, and I think this is the funny part, the religious council seems to think, well, if we just talk to them again, this time they'll give up. That's laughable. And predictably, Peter doubles down again. Verse 29, he says, we must obey God rather than men. And then in verses 30 to 32, he accuses the religious leaders of putting Jesus, the Christ, to death. He goes out of his way to point out that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. He's talking about the God of our fathers. And then he says, but you put him to death. And then he goes on to proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ. The very thing that got them in prison to start with, Peter does again. And he directly does it to the face of those who are accusing him. That is courage. I mean, sometimes we speak about courage in watered-down ways. We say things like, Well, that receiver had to have great courage to go over the middle and catch that ball knowing he's going to get hit. Or that musician had to have great courage to get on stage and perform a solo. Or that writer had to have great courage to write that article knowing they might catch some disagreement. And while I'm not denying that those things require a certain amount of courage, there's courage and then there's courage. 
right? To stand up to your accusers who have all of the power. And by the way, just put your leader to death. And now they're breathing murderous threats in your direction. And to hold your ground and even accuse your accusers of being wrong, that's courageous. And I'm convinced that that type of courage can only come from the Holy Spirit and only can come from a confidence that is entirely based on this understanding that in the end, things will work out. And without question, I think that's what's happening here. Peter and the apostles are being emboldened by the Holy Spirit and they're being emboldened by the knowledge that in the end, Jesus wins and the church will prevail. But my question for us this morning is simply this. Do we believe that to be true? Do we believe that the church will be victorious in the end? Do we believe that the gospel message will not be thwarted? Or deep down, is there some uncertainty in our minds about the final result? When Tanya and I were in our 20s, so a really, really long time ago, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, we went on vacation with my parents to the Branson area. And on that vacation, we ended up spending a day on Lake Table Rock with some friends of my parents. They had a boat, and so we went out on the boat with them. And for whatever reason, my parents' friends thought it would be a good idea if we went cliff jumping that day. Now, mind you, they weren't going. They just thought it would be a good idea if some of us did. And so they pulled up to this giant rock, and the expectation was that we were going to jump off the cliff, some of us. Now, I'm not particularly afraid of heights, but this cliff was probably at least 30 feet, maybe upwards to 50 feet. It was no joke. And there was not a chance in the world I was going to jump in without someone else doing it first. I didn't know, is the water deep enough? Are there obstacles hidden here? Is this even the right place to jump? I had no idea what to expect. But once I saw several people go before me, my questions started to go away and I became more confident. Okay, I think I can do this. And so I did. But understand this, my courage that day was not based on extreme mental fortitude on my part. It was based on t- entirely on the fact that I'd seen other people do it and survive. And I thought, you know, I can probably do this and I won't die either. Now here's the connection to Acts 5. I think a lot of us lack courage in sharing the gospel because we're not sure what will happen. Is the water deep enough? Are there obstacles here that I can't see? What will happen to me? In other words, it feels like we're ready to jump off the cliff and we're just not sure what's going to happen because we've never seen anyone else jump. But what we fail to remember is that someone has already jumped before us. Jesus jumped off that cliff and took the wrath of God on our behalf. He died on the cross for our sins and he rose three days later. And because of that victory, you can be entirely confident that no matter how scary the jump may look, in the end, if you're in Christ, you will be victorious. Jesus took the worst that this world has to offer, and he conquered. And if you are in Christ, no matter what the world may throw your way, you will be victorious too. They may kill your body, don't get me wrong, Jesus even admits as much, but they cannot touch your soul. Jesus' victory guarantees our victory if you're in Christ. Now, by the way, if you don't know Christ, this would be yet another reason why I would plead with you today to turn from your sin to Christ so that you can have his victory. If you're in Christ, and the encouragement is, jump. Be courageous. The end result has already been determined. No matter what people may think about you or do to you or say to you, Jesus has already secured your final victory. The church will win. The gospel will not be thwarted. So let's be bold and courageous. Let's take some chances. Secondly, in light of the unstoppable nature of the church, we should be joyful. So we should be courageous, but we should also be joyful. Perhaps the most surprising verse in the whole passage, and my favorite, is verse 41. In fact, let's go back to verse 40 for context here. Verse 41 is where I want to head. Verse 40, when they called in the apostles... 
They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Here's the thing. We have a tendency to complain about almost everything. We complain about small aches and pains. Oh, I've got this hangnail that's really bothering me. Or my package came a day late. It's driving me crazy. Or I had to wait a really long time in the drive through window. How annoying. So the idea of rejoicing when you were just beaten, likely 39 times with a whip, is hard for us to fathom. And to be clear, and this is what makes it crazy, the apostles were not rejoicing because they'd been released. That would make sense. They were rejoicing because they'd been beaten. And they were rejoicing because it meant they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. That's weird. It's a good weird, but it's weird. How is that possible to rejoice when you're beaten for the name of Christ? Again, I would say it's because the disciples understood the big picture. If Jesus was persecuted and suffered as his followers, we should expect no less. But if Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death and guaranteed our victory, then the final outcome is certain for us also. And that means that we can rejoice even in our suffering because we know the way this story ends. Listen, if your goal is to live your best life now, as some false teachers would argue, I'll just say this, biblical Christianity is probably not for you. We don't follow Jesus because he makes our life easy now. We don't follow Jesus because it leads to health and wealth and safety. No, we follow Jesus because he is who he says he is. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. He's God. And we know that he died on the cross for our sins and he rose three days later and he's now seated at the right hand of God. And we long for the day when he will return and make things right. And one day he will return and he will make things right. And so to suffer on his behalf now actually gives us an opportunity to share in his sufferings and also be reminded that those who share in his sufferings will one day share in his glory. One of the reasons why we're so afraid of suffering and why we lack joy is because we don't really believe that the glory to come later will be worth it. So we watch the news and we start to lose our minds about what suffering could come our way. Or we hop on social media and we start to panic about the direction we're headed in. But as Jesus says in Matthew 5, the passage Jim read earlier, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you on his behalf, for your reward in heaven is great. It's because of what is to come that we can have joy. Think about it this way. Athletes will train and beat their bodies because they believe the reward to come is greater. Musicians will practice to the point their fingers are bleeding or their lips are cracked because they believe the, the sacrifice is worth the payout. People wait in line for hours on Black Friday because they're convinced that deal's worth it. How much more then should we as Christians have a future-looking mindset if we are in Christ? We're not waiting here for athletic glory or musical achievement or a new TV. We're waiting for the glory of Christ and to be with him forever. And that future glory was assured by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It was assured by the Holy Spirit being given to us. And thus, we can have joy even in the midst of our suffering because we know what's coming. Yes, difficulty now is real, but the greatness that awaits is far better. So we can be joyful. We can be joyful even in the midst of suffering. But lastly, in light of the unstoppable nature of the church, we should persevere. We should persevere. So we should have courage. We should be joyful. We should persevere. I read a story recently about a cross-country runner here in Nebraska who collapsed four times in the final mile of his district cross-country race. The last time, he was so weak, he couldn't even really get up. He had to be helped to the finish line by a fellow competitor. It was a pretty selfish and amazing gesture of sportsmanship by this other guy who stopped on his run to help this guy up that he didn't even know. And that gesture of sportsmanship made the story go viral. 
and for good reason. But the thing I kept thinking about was not the person who stopped to help him up. I kept thinking about this kid who got up four times in the last mile. Whether that was wise or not, I don't know. But his perseverance was incredible. But hear this. The perseverance of the church in Acts 5 is even more incredible. Thrown in jail, threatened with death, beaten, and yet look at how the passage ends. Last verse, verse 42. Just beaten. And every day in the temple... And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. In the book of Acts, the church has already been knocked down multiple times. But they keep getting back up. And they do so because they know the finish line is coming. And they know they cannot lose. Church, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and if the Holy Spirit is active, we are going to win. Now, I'm not saying we won't face significant obstacles. I'm not saying that we might not be in a situation that feels really dire. But in the end, again, when I say the end, I mean the long picture end. Long, long run. The church is going to win. And so the encouragement is keep going. Get back up. Maybe you shared Christ before and it didn't go well. Get back up. Maybe you lost a friendship before because you were bold for Christ or you stood for some principle of Scripture. Get back up. Maybe you froze the last time you had a chance to share Christ and you lacked courage. It's okay, get back up, keep going. The finish line is in sight and the end result is certain. The church will not be stopped, the gospel message will not be thwarted. Listen, it's possible that we will face great opposition in the days to come. But let the, act, let the church in Acts 5 remind us, and for that matter, let the church in Iran remind us, despite opposition and persecution, the church of Jesus Christ will not be stopped. And because of that, we should be courageous, we should be joyful, and we should persevere. Because we know how the story ends. We know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. We will share in his victory. So let's get back up and let's keep going. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder we have here in Acts chapter 5. That although the church faces frequent opposition, sometimes severe in nature, we know that the church will not be stopped and that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ will not be chained. And it's because you've already secured the victory for us. By being raised from the dead, our victory is certain. By, giving the Holy Spirit, by being given the Holy Spirit, we have the, down, we have the guarantee of the down payment that's coming. We have the down payment of the payment that's coming. So God, we just pray that we would have more courage and more joy and more perseverance. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen.